This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Volkswagen's brazen cheating on air pollution rules rocked an auto industry with a history of shifty business. Almost every company has cheated. What was different here is the level of cheating. And the fact, they kept on lying. Dieselgate has now cost the company $30 billion, plus jail time for one executive. But the scandal has had its silver linings. One of the outcomes of Dieselgate is that the penalties include uh, investments in electric charging infrastructure. Will the newly energized push toward electric cars expand the market and drive down prices? Imagine Super Bowl commercials all over the place with zero emission vehicles instead of pickups. Imagine the response that the consumer would have. Dieselgate and the future of the auto industry. Up next on Climate One. I'm Devin Strolovich. In 2017, Volkswagen pleaded guilty to criminal charges of installing cheating software on nearly half a million diesel cars in the United States and 9 million worldwide. The cheating software hid the fact that VW's so-called clean diesels actually broke pollution laws. Soot from diesel engines is linked to cancer and other diseases. Six VW executives were indicted on criminal charges, and the company agreed to pay more than $4 billion in penalties. It will also pay $15 billion to defrauded drivers. Independent investigations found that many other car makers, including Renault, Volvo, Jeep, Hyundai, and Fiat, also exceeded pollution limits. VW subsequently announced it will invest $40 billion in robotic and electric cars that emit no tailpipe emissions. This conversation about the scandal and the future of personal mobility is generously sponsored by the ClimateWorks Foundation. To talk about Dieselgate and its impact, Greg Dalton welcomes three guests. Alberto Ayala was a key California air regulator who investigated the VW cheating scandal. He's now the top air pollution official in Sacramento, California. Edward Niedermeyer is an auto industry analyst and host of the Autonocast podcast. He's a contributor to Bloomberg View and has written extensively about Tesla Motors. And Margot Oge is former director of the Office of Transportation and Air Quality at the US EPA. She's now an advisor to the VW board. Here's our conversation about the impact of Dieselgate and the future of the auto industry. So Alberto Ayala, let's begin with you. It's 2012. California has declared fighting climate change a major priority. Uh, diesels were thought to be part of the solution, better than gasoline in, in many respects. You started to test cars as a California air regulator, and then things started to look a little fishy. Pick up the story there. <laughs> That is correct. Um, uh, at the time, uh, California was, was well underway uh, to set up and uh, build a climate uh, agenda that obviously included um, the biggest source of emissions, uh, greenhouse gases and otherwise, and that is the transportation sector. And um, you know, we, we identified and, and realized that because diesels were so efficient, um, they were going to be a low-carbon solution for us. But uh, diesels had, had never been very popular in, in California or in the U.S., for that matter. Uh, and as we began to promote and expect uh, the uh, fraction of uh, diesel cars in the fleet to grow, we quickly realized that we didn't really understand the technology. We had not tested it. We had not researched it to the level that we had other technologies like gasoline cars, for example. And that was really the, the beginning of, of, of our um, interest in um, you know, bringing the cars in 
And um, as I often say, just kick the tires. Just trying to get our, our feet wet, trying to understand the technology, uh, the way it, uh, it, it performs, what have you. And um, just, just by the mere fact that we started testing uh, as many different types of cars as we could get our hands on, um, it was, that's when it became clear to, to us that some cars were not performing the way that we expected them. And um, that's when uh, things got, as you said, um, a little fishy. And then eventually you realized that they, they were kind of gaming the system, that the cars somehow knew they were on a treadmill. There's all sorts of things, ways that the companies did that. Then the VW agreed to recall the cars to fix them. Tell us what happened then. Well, so you just uh, compressed about <laughs> three years' worth of work uh, in, 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 into a real um, quick uh, event. And, and Welcome actually, to radio, yeah. It, it, actually, it actually took a long time for us to, to realize that there was cheating going on, and I want to make that clear. I mean, you said 2012. The agencies did not announce the violation until 2015. And the reason for that is because we spent all that time doing a lot of testing, going back and forth with the company. So, um, you know, it, it wasn't a trivial um, issue. But to your point, um, at one point in time in, in late 2014, um, the company, for other reasons, had already planned a, a recall. And before they can do that, they have to get uh, approval from the agencies. And they sold it to us as an opportunity to fix the more recent problem. Uh, and that makes sense to us. We figured, uh, let's be efficient about it. They're going to be bringing the, the cars to fix this completely unrelated problem. That will present the opportunity. And, and it made sense to us at the time, and that's why we approved it. And so there's a recall for VW cars. Uh, they come in. And what's the, what really happens rather than fixing the problem? What do they really do? So, so again, if you fast forward and we look back now, we understand what actually happened. At the time, um, we gave the company the okay with the understanding that once they uh, performed the recall and implemented the fixes that they needed to, um, we said, that's fine, but bring us a car to test it again. And uh, that, that's really when it became apparent that uh, the so-called fix wasn't much of, of anything other than just more convolution and just, uh, uh, you know, more, more issues with the cars. So then what ultimately convinces the company to say, which is pretty rare, okay, we did it, you got us? Well, I, I like to, uh, let, me, let me take a step back. I mean, California, obviously, we've had an opportunity to reflect back in terms of, um, you know, all the issues that really led us down this path. And I do say with conviction that um, California has a pretty unique uh, program in place for emissions uh, regulations and, and compliance. And it's really that program that allow us to get to the final answer. And the best way to characterize it is after years of work with the company going back and forth, we really put them in a corner where they had no other um, answer, which was a, a, a lie now we know, other than just to admit that it was a defeat device. So I, I do think that it was, it was our, our perseverance and, and you know, there was many of us involved in, in, this, in this process, I wanna make that clear, but it, it really was a point where they just had no other uh, place to turn than to admit the um, 
cheating. Margot, okay, you spent 20-some years at the top office uh, in the U.S. EPA investigating, you know, keeping an eye on the industry. How do you look at this scandal compared to other many scandals in the auto industry? Where, well, how does this rank? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me just um, make a statement because I think it's very important. As good as uh, Alberta's former agency, Carbis, and my former agency, the Environmental Protection Agency, we really did not catch VW. VW cars were introduced back to the U.S. in 2007. The last time we saw a VW car was in the mid-'80s. So they came to the U.S. in 2007, along with BMW and Mercedes. At EPA, we audit about 15% of the cars, and I cannot tell you the formula because there is a, <laughs> there is a formula that we use. I mean, VW was selling 50,000 cars. We didn't test it. So it went from 2007 all the way to 2014, 2015. And I, and I have to say, th the first credit on this goes to the International Council for Clean Transportation. They took it to Alberto and they took it to, to EPA. Um, I was gone by then, <laughs> and I left EPA in 2012. So it was because of the, of the ICCT that this case came up. Probably eventually, the agencies both at the state level and federal, would have picked it up. But that has been going on for many years. Now, let me say this. My 18 years at the Environmental Protection Agency overseeing the Office of Transportation and Air Quality, uh, I was not surprised. I mean, everybody, almost every company has cheated, from Toyota to GM to Honda. What was different here is the level of cheating. I mean, 40% above the standards. And the fact, as Alberto said, they kept on lying. Let me give you an example. In 2009, under the President Clinton, we caught all, all diesel truck manufacturers cheating for a decade. They were improving fuel efficiency and they were cheating on NOx. It took us 10 years Nitrous to figure oxide. Out. Nitrous it, oxide. <laughs> the first company that we caught, because we tested the engine, Cummings engine in our lab, I brought them into the office, and they said, well, you know what, you know, uh, we really could not read the regulations, they're maybe vague. One company after the other, all seven of them came in. Within six months, the Department of Justice had a deal with them. They polluted one million metric tons of NOx. By the way, we never recover more than 10% of that. The total penalty for these companies, all seven of them, $1 billion. Why? Because they admitted early on, they didn't keep on saying, you know, we're not cheating, we haven't done anything, you know, keep on lying. So every company, for the most part, cheats. And in the U.S., the good news is that we do have strong, you know, federal programs, and California is very strong. So between California and EPA, we enforce those laws. In Europe, they have never had an enforcement case against the car company until the diesel gate broke. Because the regulators are pretty cozy with the companies? Because these are national companies. So do you think, so basically what happened, Mercedes, for example, I'm not picking on Mercedes, could be any of these companies, goes to um, Portugal and they ask a private company to certify their car. And they pay them. They don't pay EPA, they don't pay California in the US. So the company in Portugal gives them a certificate, then Mercedes takes it and, and can introduce their cars in any country in Europe. 
no penalties, no enforcement until now, after the Dieselgate, that things have changed. After the scandal broke, Philip Forbes became a moderator of a forum on Facebook with 4,000 owners. Here's his, he's uh, talking about his ownership of a VW. <laughs> I own a uh, 2013 Volkswagen Passat TDI six-speed manual. I got a job that I knew was going to involve a lot of driving, about 50,000 miles a year. And the day after I started, I went and bought this car. Mainly, it was just purely financial. I wanted to save money. My environmental concern was more the uh, non-renewable resource of fossil fuels. You know, in my mind, this was a vehicle that would consume less of that resource and so that was a good thing my car is one of i believe the number is 12,000 or, or fewer out of the almost 500,000 in total there will never be a fix available for my model honestly this hasn't really impacted my views on volkswagen i know they're far from the first company who's done this obviously it's wrong but uh i'm gonna keep driving the car at this point they would give me about eleven thousand dollars you know, I'm driving 50,000 miles a year. I've driven this car over a thousand miles between fuel stops before. That's insane. I mean, if I had $11,000, but not this car today, I have no idea what I would replace it with. So, uh, you know, I'll keep driving it. That's Philip Forbes, a VW owner in Hollister, California. Edward Niedermeyer, your take on, on his comments like, hey, I need this car. It hasn't changed my view on VW. What's the lesson of this scandal? Well, you know, <clears throat> There's a saying, it's actually, I, I really like the saying, uh, which is your mileage may vary, right? And and this is something I think everybody who's ever owned a car knows, right? You get the window sticker, uh, which comes out of the, the testing that the regulators do. Um, and that's sort of a, a baseline that you kind of hope to achieve. And, and some cars are better at, at hitting that and some are not. And, and actually, a lot of it has to do with how you drive the car, you know, how aggressively you accelerate. Um, and, and certainly at a, in this country, we don't really think or talk or, or teach people about how to drive more efficiently. It's not really part of our, our discourse around cars, right? Um, and so the challenges with catching cheating really comes down to this issue, right? Um, the, the regulatory system is set up to be an even playing field. That's why we test in labs. We can control the variables, right? Um, and as a result, once you get them out, cars out into the real world, there's going to be variation from that because the conditions vary. A headwind, a tailwind, things like that. Um, and so um, I think people are, are very used to sort of seeing some variance. And I think the car companies, that's one of the reasons it's so hard to catch this kind of cheating is because people just expect these variations to exist, and rightly so, because you know, the real world is, is very you know, chaotic and, and, and variable. Um, and also, um, you know, consumers are, are quite conservative. They get used to certain things, and they want to keep doing them that way. Uh, things like you know, time between gas stations, uh, you know, stops for fuel, that's actually really important, and it's actually a really big challenge when you start to think about the new technologies that are coming down the road that will hopefully replace um, some of these, these more polluting ones. You know, new technology is, is hard to develop, but I think when you compare that to changing people's behavior, uh, it's actually easier. Uh, changing people's behavior is one of the hardest things to do. Um, so I think that's something that's really important to keep in mind as we think about sort of the future and, and how we move past some of these issues. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about Dieselgate and the future of personal mobility. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks about the scandal's impact on other auto industry issues like emissions, electrification, and automation. It's making people question. The public is questioning this paradigm, right, of the automobile that we haven't questioned for a century now. That's up next when Climate One continues.
We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about Dieselgate and the future of the auto industry with Alberto Ayala, the California air regulator who investigated the VW cheating scandal. Edward Niedermeyer, an auto industry analyst and host of the Autonocast podcast. And Margot Oge, former director of the Office of Transportation and Air Quality at the US EPA. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Edward Niedermeyer, let's talk about how this will uh, affect the electrification. Electric cars have been around, uh, well, first, the first ones were like 1900, some of the earliest cars in Detroit. The Detroit Electric was a ladies' car. So tell us how this will affect the move toward electrification broadly. Is this going to be, yeah, how's it going to be? Yeah, um, well, I think there's two factors that have really sort of changed the conversation around electric cars. And one of them is clearly Dieselgate. uh, And the other one, I think, is is Tesla Motors and and what they've done. Um, Very, very different sort of aspects of of the issue. Um, And I think between them, they sort of illustrate the the challenges of our current system and the promises of the future. Um, You know, even before Tesla, when Tesla was still a tiny, tiny, tiny little startup making very few little roadsters that were very expensive and and very few were ever made, um, uh, Carlos Ghosn, who is the CEO at the time of of Nissan and Renault, uh, two giant global car companies, uh, invested billions of dollars. Um, about $5 billion. About $5 billion, yeah. Um, and uh, they did that uh, in order to build a global capacity plants in the United States, uh, in Japan, and in Europe uh, to build 500,000 affordable electric cars every year. Um, that was a, a, a historic gamble by a car company. It's one that, frustratingly, very few people know about and understand. And unfortunately, how that played out um, is that you know, they invested in the capacity of about 500,000 cars a year, and cumulatively, since the Nissan Leaf debuted in 2011, I think they just recently crossed about the 300,000 unit mark. So, so, and that's cumulatively, right? So they wanted to sell 500,000 cars a year, they cumulatively only sold 300,000. In the auto industry, it's, it's a capital intensive and low margin business. And what that means is, is that overcapacity is, how, is what kills car companies, right? Having the, the capacity to build more cars than people are willing to buy. Uh, and so the entire industry, right, looked at, at, at this experiment, this grand experiment that, that Carlos Ghosn initiated, and they concluded that, you know, yeah, there's a lot of talk, a lot of excitement in, in, in some circles about electric cars, but man, when you, when you look at the dollars and cents and you look at the business, um, it just isn't happening. And, um, and, and so I think that what, what's happened since then is Tesla has become this global phenomenon, right, and, and Dieselgate has really opened people's eyes about um, uh, issues around this, and and um, luckily, and I think uh, it, it's really fantastic that um, one of the outcomes of Dieselgate is that the penalties uh, include uh, investments in like electric charging infrastructure. And so I think it's really great that that this you know really terrible situation has been turned into an opportunity to build a better future. And we need to to have this be a teachable moment and a, a moment to to really think about this transition. And and hopefully that's that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. Margo, okay, so EVs have been sort of heralded. By by environmentalists and, and kind of hyped for some time. They haven't really met expectations. Looking at the Nissan example, you know, isn't that a cautionary tale that's saying this EV transition may not happen as fast as a lot of greenies in California would like it to happen? Mm, I, I would say that it's happening pretty fast. I mean, if, if, you, if you compare uh, the amount of time that it took Toyota Prius to reach the current levels, of EVs. There is no comparison. So basically, what is happening right now is Tesla, no question about it, has been on the face of the traditional OEMs. I mean, they're challenging. Auto OEMs, automakers. Yeah, the traditional mm-hmm. car manufacturers. Uh, sorry about the jargon. The, <laughs> the traditional car manufacturers. So all of a sudden, you know, the Detroit and the Germans, they're saying, oh my God, 
people who drive Tesla cars, they love it. It, it, it and, the, and the Tesla owners are not greenies, by the way. Uh, you know, <laughs> I live in McLean, Virginia, and I'm driving a, a, a Volt. So I was, you know, I was in a car wash, and I and the guy in front of me was driving an expensive Tesla. So I went by, you know, we were waiting both of us for our car, and I said, you know, why are you driving this car? And I was hoping that he was going to say, I'm an environmentalist, you know, uh, and I love this car. He said, I used to have a Ferrari, mm-hmm. and I drive this because it's better than a Ferrari, <laughs> and it's more powerful, and I love the technology. So Tesla was... I think the catalyst. The second catalyst is the ZEV mandate here in California. I think California... Zero emission vehicles. Zero emission vehicle mandate that California has been fighting. I mean, you know, they failed back in the 90s. You know, they went backwards. But now, that's the time. And having the California experiment here is what happens then for the experiment in China. Because the Chinese said, well, what a moment, you know? We should have something similar because we can never really... If you think about it, the internal combustion engine has been refined over 100 years. The emission control systems and so forth. You know, what, you know, 20,000 parts. We're going to do an electric car. And for them, it's not just an environmental issue. If you think about it, it, it is a, an economic issue, an industrial issue. So the ZEV mandate from California went to China. And right now, all these companies are global companies. GM has more profits from China than U.S. So all these companies are investing because of Tesla and because of China. The other thing that we have to think about, set aside the greenies, and I'm one of them, is that the cost of batteries have come down over 70% the last seven years. So the expectation by many experts is that by 2022, maybe 2023 timeframe, on overall cost of owning an electric car will be the same as owning an internal combustion engine. And by the way, it's more fun to drive than a gasoline car. That's for Am sure. I right? The, the immediate, okay. immediate torque. The so so, so my view is that the future is here and it's coming. It's all about electric. If you're just joining us, we're talking about uh, the Dieselgate scandal and the future of electric cars. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Margot Oge, former uh, regulator at the U.S. EPA, Edward Niedermeyer, host of the Otanocast podcast, and Alberto Ayala, an air pollution regulator in California. Alberto, let's ask you, there's a documentary on Netflix that's really good called the Dirty Money mm-hmm. series. Alex Gibney is the, is the producer. He did uh, things on Enron, uh, Lance Armstrong. He seems to like cheating a <laughs> lot uh, or catching. <laughs> cheaters. Um, and so we have VW Armstrong and Enron. Uh, there's a point in there where you talk about something called the midterm review. So explain what that is and the importance of uh, this check-in on the cafe standards. So you want to get political now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so California has unique authority under the Federal Clean Air Act to set its own standards, and that has to do with um, the history of, of air pollution in our state. Um, California said its own standards for cars, emission standards, um, that back in, uh, in 2012, as I mentioned before, uh, they were pretty far-reaching. They, they applied all the way out to model year 2025. We had never done that before. Typically, you set standards by, say, every four or five years because that's basically the best that you can project technology development, which is really what you're trying to do with the emission mm-hmm. standards. Force better technology that emits uh, lower and lower emissions. Um, the, uh, 
automakers agreed to the standards. The, uh, at the time, the Obama administration got California, the, the federal agencies, and the automakers to say, let's work together, let's, um, let's implement the standards. But the caveat was, because they are so far-reaching, we need to do a, um, a check-in mm-hmm. midway. Mm-hmm. And that became known as the midterm review, and that is really meant to be an examination of whether we got the standards right or not. And if the answer is not, do we need to make adjustments? Uh, that happened in California already, and it actually happened uh, at EPA under the previous administration. And both agencies said we got it right. Nothing has changed relative to the way that we predicted uh, the technology to develop. We are seeing great acceleration of the EV technology for a number of reasons, uh, both uh, policies, uh, regulations, as well as uh, a lot of investments that California is making to promote the technology. Um, And, uh, of course, uh, with the change in administration, um, uh, I think it's pretty pretty well understood that EPA is is the current EPA is on a mission to uh, roll back a lot of the regulatory uh, standards have, have been put in place, and uh, you know the 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 question is is on the table now as to whether the midterm review that has already been completed in California and at the federal level is basically going to be thrown out, and something else is going to come out of the current uh, federal government. By the way, this is something that the car companies that negotiated with the Obama administration to set the standards as soon as the elections happen. They went to the Trump administration. They said, you know what? We need some changes. They were the first industry after the election. They were the first industry to go there. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the Trump administration says, you you mean that we're going to lose million jobs because of the standards? That's what they said. Lying. Million jobs will be lost. When we know it's exactly the opposite. The new standards have encouraged the development of new jobs. And new technologies. And new technologies. So. The other thing that we know is that the other agency, and there is, it's called NHTSA, the National Highway Safety Administration. We have all these legal, these <laughs> acronyms in, in Washington. Who is a safety agency, by the way. doesn't have the experience of the Environmental Protection Agency or California to set emission standards. It's taking the lead under the Trump administration. And what we have seen as a result of leaking documents that Bloomberg is, is playing out is that they're thinking to roll over the standards as much as 40% from 2025. Big rollback. Which big they, rollback. Yeah. So now the car companies are caught in this big dilemma because, as we know, 12 states, along with California, are going to sue. And I can tell you, because I was at EPA you know, leading the effort for 2012, and after I left, they spent another $30 million plus the California effort, that the record is so strong that at the end of the day, this administration is going to lose. But what's going to happen is there's going to be a huge uncertainty. So if I'm GM and I'm planning to invest, I'm doing the thinking today. What am I going to invest for the next five years? These companies are not going to be able to make any investment. But they have to know that. If they're the ones who are advocating Uh, for the rollback... If they were really hurt by the uncertainty, they wouldn't advocate for that rollback. You know what? You know, privately, what these companies, many of them are telling me, is that's not what they were looking for. They were looking for some flexibilities. So in Greek, we're saying, if you you are asking the devil to dance with you and you get into that dance, 
you'd be afraid what you're going to come out of the dance. And that's what's happening. These companies, the majority of them, are not looking for major rollovers. And they want a national program. They want California to be part of it. The last thing that they want is California and 12 other states that represent, what, almost 36% of the market, car market, to have a different standard. That's a disaster for these companies. So that's the chaos of the Trump administration and the chaos of the automotive industry that we are experiencing right now. Edward Niedermeyer, let's talk about <laughs> autonomous connected electric cars. There's uh, all the rage these days, robotic cars, uh, perhaps some setback after a person was, was killed in Arizona recently. Uber has stopped their testing. But how is autonomous going to put some wind in the sales of, of electric cars, or will it? Yeah, so like, like what Tesla has done with electric cars, I think autonomous cars... Um, are creating a lot of excitement and interest in cars. I think we've sort of, we've had this um, paradigm, right, of the automobile for a century now. And I think in this country in particular, um, you know, uh, automobiles, we associate them with freedom. And I think with electric cars purely on their own, um, the fact that you do have to stop and charge and you don't have that, you know, stop, fill up with gas, go, that is a real issue because it bumps up against, again, these, you know, century of values that have been sort of inculcated. Um, you know, electric uh, has been on the rise, and certainly in the in the public imagination. And I think autonomous cars now are are really sort of uh, sort of throwing gas on that fire. And I think that that's good because it's making people question. The public is questioning this paradigm that we haven't questioned for a century. And so I think that that's inevitably going to lead people to um, sort of look for new, look at new technologies, look at new um, ways of getting around. And, and maybe that might be not even using cars. So. Um, because these technologies have been sort of emerging together, there's this uh, very strong assumption that they all sort of fit together really conveniently. I don't think that's necessarily the case. And just the most simple way to explain that is that autonomous cars are extremely expensive. The sensors, the software, the processing, all of it, insanely expensive, each individual car. Now, you know, the solution to that is to share them, right? Is to, is to have, you know, shared mobility uh, taxis, essentially, robo-taxis. Um, and, uh, but still, in order to make that business model work, which, by the way, nobody has yet, what, what the companies who are, who are closest to a business model in that, in that space say is that utilization is the key. And that's one of the problems that it solves, right? You know, the, the privately owned cars that we have now spend 90% plus of their lives sitting, not being used, which is extremely wasteful um, and an environmental problem in and of itself. Um, and so now we're kind of, it, this is taking us to another extreme where in order to make these vehicles prop, uh, profitable, including the in, in immense investment just in developing the software, plus again the, the sensors and the, and the build materials in the car itself, um, these vehicles need to be utilized 90, 95, 98, as close to 100% as you possibly can just to make the business model work, at least in the, in the short to medium term. Um, and that, there's a challenge there with pure electric plug-in cars, right, because you have to stop that vehicle and it has to not move and sit there for, say, you know, 30, 30 minutes at a minimum at this point, given current technology, for every couple hundred miles, depending on the range of the vehicle. So that's, that's an issue. And, um, but I think the, the sort of promise there is that um, even if these vehicles are, are hybrids or plug-in hybrids, um, which don't have some of those downsides uh, of downtime and sort of you know, lower utilization as a result, um, you know, shared mobility has the promise of reducing overall the number of cars. Now, that's a, the big challenge for the industry because they are an industry that's built on scale. So it's going to be a very tough transition for them to, to, uh, to navigate. Um, and I think that if you just look back a few years ago, the bailout of the automakers shows sort of how fragile, even though you, you see, you know, they're making billions of profits right now. It's a very cyclical business. And this transition, as if and when it accelerates, could create real, real difficult 
um, um, transitions, but um, there is a lot of promise there. Again, too, you do bump up a little bit and sort of having to change consumer behavior, but I think already with things like Uber and Lyft, um, that behavior is already starting to change. People are starting to understand that shared mobility can actually be incredibly convenient, especially in where parking is so difficult, where congestion is so bad. So I'm excited about, about you know, autonomous technology, um, but I think there are also challenges and it's easy to get carried away with the promise and I think we have to be prepared for a, a long and difficult and unfortunately potentially some, some tragedy along the way too. You're listening to a conversation about Dieselgate and the future of personal mobility. This is Climate One. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks about some of the broader fallout of the Volkswagen scandal. Dieselgate has a huge impact beyond what happened in the U.S. to get citizen states realizing that the air pollution that they're facing comes from diesel cars. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about Dieselgate and the future of the auto industry with Alberto Ayala, the California air regulator who investigated the VW cheating scandal. Edward Niedermeyer, an auto industry analyst and contributor to Bloomberg View. And Margot Oge, former director of the Office of Transportation and Air Quality at the US EPA. Here's Greg. Edward Niedermeyer, your take on how this will affect you know, global carbon emissions. The point here, the point of Climate One, is to talk about how to reduce carbon pollution and get that down. Transportation's a big sector. The CAFE fuel efficiency standards were one of the big underpinnings of the Paris Climate Accord, the U.S. getting in there. Now that seems like that's being um, chopped. Yeah. You know, for what it's worth, we have a situation right now in this country where trucks and SUVs are selling at record numbers. I mean, we are selling 17 million cars a year. That alone is is a kind of a staggering number. And the percentage of those uh, that are trucks and SUVs is, is also staggering. I think that is where the car companies are coming from when they're sort of looking for flexibility or, or hoping to maybe push California away from its strong position. And, and again, you know, the courts have sided with California's right to set its own rule. And, and the fear of this, quote, patchwork of, of regulation is very real. And, and having two separate standards in the U.S. is worse than having a higher standard as far as every automaker is concerned. There's no doubt about that. But basically what they see is the political movement going one way towards greater efficiency um, and, and more incentives for electric cars and things like that. But the market just isn't moving in that direction yet. It, it is slowly with electric cars. It, that market is growing, but it's still tiny. It's single digits at best. Um, and, and meanwhile, trucks and SUVs are selling like crazy. So there is, it, it's important to keep that context in mind because um, at the end of the day, you know, uh, uh, we have to come to compromises and we have to sort of live with the world we have to some extent as we, you know, as we try and change it. And, um, you know, again, like I said earlier, you know, changing people's behavior is really the hard part. Um, setting, setting policy, developing new technology, again, all, all difficult things too, but, but really changing people's behavior is, is quite difficult. And so um, I think when you think about Tesla, right, it's, it's not just an environmental thing. Uh, a lot of Tesla's power comes out of the fact that it comes from Silicon Valley, uh, which uh, I think you know, the rest of, of the US and the rest of the world has seen Silicon Valley over the last you know, five, 10 years even, of course longer than that, but really accelerating um, its ability to transform our world. And I think people associate Tesla with that really transformative power of new technologies that are developed here in California. Um, unfortunately, I think that that can give a little bit of, a, of a, the wrong impression because I think there's been this, this belief that they are going to be able to transform the auto industry and, and the market for cars as rapidly and as completely as we've seen, say, the iPhone transform how we communicate and, and you know, use 
you know, taxis and a million other things. Um, I would caution people who hold that belief because um, the fundamentals of the car industry, again, being capital intensive and low margin, make it an extremely difficult business. This is why Tesla doesn't have a viable business. You have to get to enormous scale for your tiny little margins to add up to uh, enough uh, profits to uh, you know, cover the cost of investing in, these, in the technology, but also in the factories. Um, and it's a very difficult business, and there are a million ways to fail at it. And so I think we need to kind of have some realistic patience about, about this transition. A, consumer behavior moves, changes slowly. B, sort of the auto industry fund, is, it, is fundamentally set up to change slowly. Um, I, I may be wrong about that, but I think it's important to at least consider some of those factors when we think about the future of the automobile. Margot Oge, the, the idea there that Tesla's not going to transform the auto industry as many people would wish. It loses a lot of money. They're having trouble scaling their cars. They're having manufacturing problems. It's not as easy as software. Well, let me say this. Um, after the diesel gate, um, VW, by the way, which was the only company as late as 2014 that was not investing on electrification or fuel cells. The only company. VW. VW. Uh, they, were, they had a religion when it comes to diesel. Diesel was everything for them. So starting 2015, VW has made huge commitments to electrification of the $90 billion that the industry totally is going to spend on electrification, $40 billion comes from VW. So Tesla was there showing the way, but Tesla is not the only way. You have a company like VW, which still is the number one company, 600,000 employees, that is committed to this point. I cannot speak for them what's going to happen next year or the year after. But right now, I can tell you with a lot of certainty that they are serious about electrification and they make the investments. So looking at the economics of electrification, that soon, in the next five years, electric cars will be as cost-effective as diesel cars on the internal combustion engine. The fact that in Europe, in Germany, um, Stuttgart, the house of Mercedes, Munich, where BMW is, the, the, the highest court in Germany said that these cities can ban diesel. You can imagine the chill factor that is going down the spine of all these companies. So setting Tesla aside, Dieselgate has a huge impact beyond what happened in the US, in Europe and other countries, to get cities and states realizing that the air pollution that they're facing comes from diesel cars. London, Paris, they're talking about banning diesel, even India, even California. But actually, what is happening in Germany, where these most powerful companies are, to ban diesel cars, I think, is a big, big win for electrification. Alberto Ayala, there's also moves to ban gasoline cars in California and China, those places. Uh, some people think that that's just cheap talk because it's proclamations that sound good by politicians who won't be around when those days come. Uh, what, what's your take on the move to ban the sale of gasoline cars in California or anywhere else? Yeah, thank you for, uh, for teeing that up because I think it's an important clarification. What we're talking about is not just diesel, is, is gasoline cars. And, and really, you know, I, I, I've been around in the business for 25 years and 17 of those I was at the Air Resources Board, so done a lot of testing. Um, 
all combustion is bad. Let's just say that. It doesn't matter whether it's natural gas, gasoline, you know, bio this or bio that or, or diesel. If it's uh, one if thing we, humans have been good at for 5,000 years. If, if we're really stuff, trying yeah. to get to our climate goals and kind of bringing it back to, to your point and what we're trying to talk about here, we really have to entertain the idea that, you know, fossil fuels need to stay in the ground. And luckily, we have technology uh, that, uh, that I think can kind of step in and, 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 and essentially provide an alternative. Uh, the, the genius of Tesla is that they proved for the first time ever that you could have a superior product in terms of a car that exceeded your expectations. And it just, just happened to be a zero emission vehicle, just happened to be electric. You know, um, I spend most of my professional life dealing with the automakers and, and with all due respect, the dinosaurs in Detroit just didn't have the mindset to be able to embrace the change that was needed. So the point about Tesla is I don't know who's going to be the leading company in the auto industry in the future. Um, you know, you could have big players like Apple all of a sudden bring you a car. So who knows? But I think what Tesla has shown is that the electric vehicle, and I want to be very clear, batteries and fuel cells are both electric, uh, is a product that is superior, and you don't have to settle for anything anymore. It's actually a better product than a combustion engine. And the car makers know that. And, you know, I, I think to, to Edward's uh, point about, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 people want um, pickup trucks and what have you. I mean, clearly the car makers influence what the consumers uh, buy. They spend billions of dollars in marketing. Imagine if they spend a fraction of that, you know, Super Bowl commercials all over the place with zero emission vehicles instead of pickups. Imagine the response that the consumer would have. So, um, again, to, to, you know, back, back to your point, um, I think um, what we have seen is Tesla and the cheating scandal and certainly the resolution that California got because not only did we uncover the, the, the cheating, but we resolved the problem. I think those are important catalysts for the transition uh, of, the, uh, of the sector. We're going to go to our lightning round for our guests here. We're talking with Climate One with Edward Niedermeyer, Margo Oge, and Alberto Ayala. We're going to ask you some quick questions for quick answers. Uh, true or false, first for Edward Niedermeyer. Regulations sometimes serve automakers more than the public. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> that should o be my question. Yeah. Uh, Margo, I'm okay, the regulator. Your question is, regulations Forward. should also serve industry by providing clarity and certainty. Absolutely, and they do. Uh, Margo, okay, Dieselgate is the biggest scandal in an industry known for scandals. <laughs> yes. Alberto Ayala, this story is a triumph of the auto geeks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, this is association. I'm going to mention something, and you're going to give me the first thing that pops into your mind with complete disregard of filtering or anything, what people might think about it. Um, so, Margo, okay, using monkeys to test human health effects of car exhaust. Nazi Germany. I'm just reading a book, by the way. Uh, so, that's what it is. Edward Niederbeyer, Elon Musk. Uh, my book, when it eventually comes out, please buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. One salesman to another. It's, okay. it's just too complicated of a topic to boil down to one, to one, <laughs> one short word, yeah. Alberta Ayala, former Volkswagen CEO Martin Winterkorn. Crook. <laughs> you said I'm filthy. 
<laughs> Edward Niedermeyer, hydrogen-powered cars. Um, uh, I, I think that the success of battery electric cars has really, uh, unfortunately, sort of been presented as coming at the expense of hydrogen. I think that it's not mutually exclusive. Alberto Ayala, congestion pricing. Good. Uh, last one, Margot Ogay, Elon Musk's Hyperloop. I love it. <laughs> okay, that ends our lightning round. Let's give them a round for getting through that. We're gonna. Um, we're gonna go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, I'm Bob Morgan, uh, formerly a business executive with Hughes, and got dragged into the auto industry after General Motors bought Hughes. Uh, understanding what a dinosaur operation they are. My question is, on the market aspects of AVs, as the market transitions, younger people are not buying cars, they're moving to central cities, they're riding Uber. Will that accelerate this market even quicker than what is happening now? So, Margo, okay, so you wrote so a book, me, Driving let, the let, Future. Let me, let me say, um, and I may disagree a little bit with some of my panel members. Good. Uh, I'm really optimistic about the new future mo personal mobility. If you think about the last hundred years, we have seen very incremental changes in you know, your cars. The cars are safer, they are cleaner, but they're still four wheels. There is a driver, internal combustion engine. But the last seven years, I mean, we have seen a revolution. And it may not happen as fast as some think, but, but it's happening. And you are absolutely right. We have, we, we have congestion. We're going to add another 2 billion people. Uh, more and more people are moving to urban environments. And young people don't want to own cars. So what you're going to see, and what, I mean, you're seeing the major car companies, by the way, calling themselves, even Toyota. I just heard Mr. Toyota calling Toyota as a mobility company. They're not calling themselves as a car manufacturer, because they're seeing the trend. And the trend, especially for urban environments, is shared, autonomous. And it has to be electric, because it's going to be the most cost-effective way to go to the future mobility. So I'm, the trends that we're talking about, the trends that we're talking about here, it's happening. I mean, you know, yes, there are accidents with autonomous cars. There are many more accidents with people driving. But, but we're going to see this, what I call case, the, the connected, autonomous, um, electric um, shared. shared vehicles mm -hmm. happening. And it's happening pretty fast. And, and the companies are scared. The car companies, all of them are investing from the smaller one to the larger one. And Silicon Valley has been a fantastic catalyst. But now it's happening in, in, in Michigan, in Detroit. So it's all happening. And I will be the first to get this autonomous car when it comes to Washington to see where I live. Edward Niedermeyer, let's talk uh, before we close about China. A big driver there, huge growing car market. Uh, a lot of the uh, car companies are looking to that for the future. We've been talking about kind of California, Europe a little bit. Let's talk about China and where they are in terms of you know building out their cities and their infrastructure. They get are they betting on gas? Are they betting on electric? 
Yeah, so so China has been since the '90s uh, trying to build its own auto industry. They see it as a strategic part of their economy, and you know, given the, their governmental sort of hand in the economy, they really want to have been trying to incentivize it. They've been trying for a long time to do that by partnering uh, Chinese automakers with with the established global majors. Um, that has been sort of a mixed. There's been mixed success there, um, and I think what they've seen now in the last you know decade or two is that there's these technological transition coming in the auto industry. And they see that as an opportunity to sort of reboot their experiment and their, their attempt to become a strategic player in the global auto industry. And so that, that aligns their incentives with this, with this revolution or this, this you know, wave of change. And so um, I think if, if you want to look for reasons to be optimistic about, um, about that, you know, China is now the global, uh, biggest uh, market for cars and for, and for electric cars in particular. And I think their incentives are very much aligned with continuing to build on that. And they have an immense regulatory uh, and all kinds of powers in order to, uh, to be able to, to continue to incentivize it. There are some reasons for concern uh, with some sort of the, the gaming of some of those uh, incentives. Um, so that it's not all, you know, rosy. But I think that that's uh, uh, going to be a, a powerhouse of the future. And also the supply chain for batteries is all there. So I think we're going to see China. I think China's natural that they're going to be a leader in the auto industry. I think them seeing and, and grasping this, this opportunity is going to also bring electric cars along with them. Margo, okay, some people would say if China builds its cities, if China's urbanizing rapidly, 300 million people moved into the middle class, another 300 million people behind them. If they build their cities and their lives around personal ownership of cars or even shared cars, cars are the problem. We've been talking here about cars. and You wrote a book I recommend, Driving the Future. But isn't car-centric future a problem in itself? Yes, it is. And, and that's why um, our hope is that shared future mobility will be part of the solution. Uh, you know, major cities in, 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 in China the Uber type of services are, are somewhat different than what we have in the US, which is basically connect people from one public trans transportation system to another back home and to work. And the more that we see that uh, happening, th I think it's gonna help. The other thing that you have to realize that in China, in major cities now, having a new car, uh, you have to go through a lottery system. You cannot get a car. Uh, one out of 10 cars can be an, in, an internal combustion engine. The rest of them have to be electric. So China is moving in many different ways to minimize the amount of cars on the road and to force people to electric and share. Greg Dalton has been talking about Dieselgate and the future of personal mobility with Alberto Ayala, the California air regulator who investigated the VW cheating scandal. Edward Niedermeyer, an auto industry analyst and host of the Autonocast podcast. And Margot Oge, former director of the Office of Transportation and Air Quality at the US EPA, and now an advisor to the VW board. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.